0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster Part 21 John Greerholm, December 29th Dear Judy, Sadie Kate has spent the week composing a Christmas letter to you, and it leaves nothing for me to tell oh we've had a wonderful time besides all the presents and games and fancy things to eat we have had hayrides and skating parties and candy pulls i don't know whether these pampered little orphans will ever settle down again into normal children many thanks for my six gifts i like them all particularly the picture of judy jr the tooth adds a pleasant touch to her smile You'll be glad to hear that I've placed out Hattie Heafy in a minister's family, and a dear family they are. They never blinked an eyelash when I told them about the communion cup. They've given her to themselves for a Christmas present, and she went off so happily clinging to her new father's hand. I won't write more now, because fifty children are writing thank-you letters, and poor Aunt Judy will be buried beneath her mail when this week's steamer gets in. MY LOVE TO THE PENDLETONS. S. MCBRIDE. P.S. SINGAPORE sends HIS LOVE TO TOGO, AND IS SORRY HE BIT HIM ON THE EAR. JOHN GREERHOLME, DECEMBER 30TH. Oh DEAR, GORDON, I HAVE BEEN READING THE MOST UPSETTING BOOK. I TRIED TO TALK SOME FRENCH THE OTHER DAY, AND NOT MAKING OUT VERY WELL, DECIDED THAT I HAD BETTER TAKE MY FRENCH IN HAND IF I DIDN'T WANT TO LOSE IT ENTIRELY that Scotch doctor of ours has mercifully abandoned my scientific education, so I have a little time at my own disposal. By some unlucky chance I began with Numa Rumiston by Dodet. It is a terribly disturbing book for a girl to read who is engaged to a politician. Read it, Gordon, dear, and assiduously train your character away from Numa's. It is the story of a politician who is disquietingly fascinating, like you, who is adored by all who know him, like you, who has a most persuasive way of talking, and makes wonderful speeches, again like you. He is worshipped by everybody, and they all say to his wife, What a happy life you must lead, knowing so intimately that wonderful man! But he wasn't very wonderful when he came home to her only when he had an audience and applause. He would drink with every casual acquaintance, and be gay and bubbling and expansive, and then return morose and sullen and down. Choix de rue, doulet de maison is the burden of the book. I read it till twelve last night, and honestly I didn't sleep for being scared. I know you'll be angry, but really and truly, Gordon dear, there's just a touch too much truth in it for my entire amusement. I didn't mean ever to refer again to that unhappy matter of August 20—we talked it all out at the time—but you know perfectly that you need a bit of watching. And I don't like the idea. I want to have a feeling of absolute confidence and stability about the man I marry. I never could live in a state of anxious waiting for him to come home. Read Numa for yourself, and you'll see the woman's point of view." i'm not patient or meek or long-suffering in any way and i'm a little afraid of what i'm capable of doing if i have the provocation my heart has to be in a thing in order to make it work and oh i do so want our marriage to work please forgive me for writing all this i don't mean that i really think you'll be a joy of the street and sorrow of the home it's just that i didn't sleep last night and i feel sort of hollow behind the eyes May the year that's coming bring good counsel and happiness and tranquillity to both of us. As ever, S. January 1st. Dear Judy, Something terribly sort of queer has happened, and positively I don't know whether it did happen or whether I dreamed it. I'll tell you from the beginning, and I think it might be as well if you burn this letter. It's not quite proper for Jervis's eyes. You remember my telling you the case of Thomas Kehoe, whom we placed out last June? He had an alcoholic heredity on both sides, and as a baby seems to have been fattened on beer instead of milk. He entered the John Greer home at the age of nine, and twice, according to his record in the Doomsday Book, he managed to get himself intoxicated, once on beer stolen from some workmen, and once, and thoroughly, on cooking brandy. You can see with what misgivings we placed him out, but we warned the family, hard-working, temperate farming people, and hoped for the best. Yesterday the family telegraphed that they could keep him no longer. Would I please meet him on the six o'clock train? Turnfelt met the six o'clock train. No boy. I sent a night message telling of his non-arrival and asking for particulars. I stayed up later than usual last night, putting my desk in order and sort of making up my mind to face the new year. Toward twelve I suddenly realized that the hour was late and that I was very tired. I had begun getting ready for bed when I was startled by a banging on the front door. I stuck my head out of the window and demanded who was there. "'Tommy Kehoe,' said a very shaky voice. I went down and opened the door and that lad, sixteen years old, tumbled in dead drunk. Thank heaven, Percy Witherspoon was within call, and not away off in the Indian camp. I roused him, and together we conveyed Thomas to our guest-room, the only decently isolated spot in the building. Then I telephoned for the doctor, who, I am afraid, had already had a long day. He came, and we put in a terrible night, It developed afterward that the boy had brought along with his luggage a bottle of liniment belonging to his employer. It was made half of alcohol and half of witch hazel, and Thomas had refreshed his journey with this. He was in such shape that positively I didn't think we'd pull him through, and I hoped we wouldn't. If I were a physician, I'd let such cases gently slip away for the good of society." "'But you should have seen Sandy work. "'That terrible, life-saving instinct of his was aroused, "'and he fought with every inch of energy he possessed. "'I made black coffee and helped all I could, "'but the details were pretty messy, "'and I left the two men to deal with him alone "'and went back to my room. "'But I didn't attempt to go to bed. "'I was afraid they might be wanting me again. "'Toward four o'clock, Sandy came to my library "'with word that the boy was asleep.' and that Percy had moved up a cot and would sleep in his room the rest of the night. Poor Sandy looked sort of ashen and haggard, and done with life. As I looked at him, I thought about how desperately he worked to save others, and never saved himself, and about that dismal home of his, with never a touch of cheer, and the horrible tragedy in the background of his life. All the rancour I've been saving up seemed to vanish, and a wave of sympathy swept over me. I stretched out my hand to him, he stretched out his to me, and suddenly, I don't know, something electric happened. In another moment we were in each other's arms. He loosened my hands and put me down in the big armchair. "'My God, Sally, do you think I'm made of iron?' he said, and walked out. I went to sleep in the chair and when I woke the sun was shining in my eyes, and Jane was standing over me, in amazed consternation. The morning at eleven he came back, looked me coldly in the eye without so much as the flicker of an eyelash, and told me that Thomas was to have hot milk every two hours, and that the spots in Maggie Peter's throat must be watched. Here we are, back to our old standing, and positively I don't know but what I dream that one minute in the night— but it would be a piquant situation, wouldn't it, if Sandy and I should discover that we were falling in love with each other, he with a perfectly good wife in the insane asylum, and I with an outraged fiancé in Washington. I don't know but what the wisest thing for me to do is to resign at once and take myself home, where I can placidly settle down to a few months of embroidering S. McBee on tablecloths, like any other respectable engaged girl. I repeat very firmly that this letter isn't for Jervis's consumption. Tear it into little pieces and scatter them in the Caribbean. S. January third, Dear Gordon, You are right to be annoyed. I know I'm not a satisfactory love-letter writer. I have only to glance at the published correspondence of Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, to realize that the warmth of my style is not up to standard. But you know already, you have known a long time, that I am not a very emotional person. I suppose I might write a lot of such things as, Every waking moment you are in my thoughts. My dear boy, I only live when you are near. But it wouldn't be absolutely true. You don't fill all my thoughts. One hundred and seven orphans do that. And I am really quite comfortably alive whether you are here or not. I have to be natural. You surely don't want me to pretend more desolation than I feel. But I do love to see you, you know that perfectly, and I am disappointed when you can't come. I fully appreciate all your charming qualities, but, my dear boy, I can't be sentimental on paper. I am always thinking about the hotel chambermaid who reads the letters you casually leave on your bureau you needn't expostulate that you carry them next your heart for i know perfectly well that you don't forgive me for that last letter if it hurt your feelings since i came to this asylum i am extremely touchy on the subject of drink you would be too if you had seen what i have seen several of my chicks are the sad result of alcoholic parents and they are never going to have a fair chance all their lives you can't look about a place like this without I keeping up a terrible thinking. You are right, I'm afraid, about its being a woman's trick to make a great show of forgiving a man, and then never letting him hear the end of it. Well, Gordon, I positively don't know what the word forgiving means. It can't include forgetting, for that is a physiological process and does not result from an act of the will." We all have a collection of memories that we would happily lose, but somehow those are just the ones that insist upon sticking. If forgiving means promising never to speak of a thing again, I can doubtless manage that, but it isn't always the wisest way to shut an unpleasant memory inside you. It grows and grows, and runs all through you like a poison. Oh, dear, I really didn't mean to be saying all this. I try to be the cheerful, carefree, and somewhat light-headed Sally you like best, but I've come in touch with a great deal of realness during this last year, and I'm afraid I've grown into a very different person from the girl you fell in love with. I'm no longer a gay young thing playing with life. I know it pretty thoroughly now, and that means that I can't be always laughing. I know this is another beastly uncheerful letter. As bad as the last, and maybe worse, but a few knew what we've just been through. A boy, sixteen, of unspeakable heredity, has nearly poisoned himself with a disgusting mixture of alcohol and witch hazel. We have been working three days over him, and are just sure now that he is going to recuperate sufficiently to do it again. It's a good world, but they're ill that's in it. Please excuse that scotch. It slipped out. Please excuse everything, Sally. End of part 21